First Peter chapter two this morning. So we took a little bit of a detour last week from First Peter, but uh, we're going to go back to chapter two this week. So the last time we had talked about First uh, Peter chapter two, we were getting into where Peter says that uh, we come to Christ, the living stone, and we are built uh, in Christ as uh, a spiritual temple. That's what he's getting at there, is that we are being built as the church, as the saved in Christ. We are the ones being built then as God's dwelling place on earth. That We're not talking now about, um, <clears throat> you know, in the Old Testament they had the temple and the tent of meeting, all those kind of things where God's specific presence was in a specific place uh, or a specific town, or you could look on a, on a map and say, here's where God is going and if, going to be. If we're going to worship Him, we go to this place. And he's saying that uh, the things of God, God's dwelling place is now a spiritual dwelling, and that is His church as we are built through Christ as living stones. And uh, then he goes on to talk about uh, how we are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, this is in verse 9, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, <clears throat> now you have received mercy. So he's saying all of these things that we should be uh, so blessed as the church, that we should be so happy about, so joyous about, and understanding the position that Christ has brought us to. And earlier in in chapter 1, he talks about how we have a living hope, we are co-heirs with Christ. All of these things that we have available to us in Christ leads us then uh, to be motivated through His Spirit, to be transformed by His Spirit, to become a holy people for Him, a holy priesthood built up as God's spiritual dwelling then. Uh, he said, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not a people, once you had nothing to do with God, once your sin separated you from God, you walked as though you were somebody who was dead. You were dead to God. But now you have become a people through the Spirit of God and through Christ's work, you have become acceptable to God. And not only acceptable to God, then He has made you to be His spiritual dwelling. So He's raised us to up to be his chosen people out of what Christ has done. And this is what I want to pick up today, uh, starting in verse 11. In chapter 2, he's saying then, uh, he's going to talk about how we should live in light of what uh, is available to us then, uh, and then how we should interact with the world around us in light of what we have received. But in verse 11, He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to have every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong. And to commend those who do right, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 
For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been made, we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, so the first thing that uh, Peter is saying then, in light of all that is available to, available to us, again, being built as God's living house, as a chosen people, we were separated from him, but we have been made God's people, his dwelling place, his chosen people. And he's saying then, in light of this, then... Uh, I urge you, in, in verse 11, I urge you, in light of all this, in, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, meaning that we have, the moment that we accepted Christ, the moment that we received salvation from Him, though we in this moment are dwelling in America, my citizenship in this world is here, but my ultimate citizenship, my allegiance, is to heaven. First, above all other things, I am a citizen of America in this world. I dwell in America in this world. And it could be anywhere on the map. You dwell in Australia or somewhere in Europe, whatever it is. You dwell in that land, but your citizenship, if you've received Christ, is in heaven. So he's saying, I urge you then, as you've received Christ, as you become God's living people, his spiritual dwelling place, as his chosen people, I urge you then to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Um, so... The first thing that we have to understand in all of this is, is what he's going to go on to talk about here is that we have influence as God's people, as his chosen people, as his dwelling place on earth. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. If, if the church, the saved in Christ, are the dwelling place of God, if we are built up as his spiritual temple, then God's presence then is manifest through us in our communities, the places where we go. When you go to your workplace... God's presence should be manifest through you as the Spirit of God is working in your heart. So we carry the Spirit of God. We carry His glory wherever we go in this world. That is how God is manifest through this community or whatever community that you dwell in. So the people of God have influence. That is one thing that we immediately receive then when we receive Christ is we have influence and that we have a decision to make. How are we going to utilize that influence? So the first thing that Peter's talking about here, though, is guarding our influence. I urge you as foreigners exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Uh, so the first thing that we have to understand, and we've talked about this before, though, is that uh, Satan's desire is destruction. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care about your education. He doesn't care how many kids you have. He doesn't care... Uh, if you're a nice person, none of that matters. It doesn't matter one bit to him. The Bible says in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his goal. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care anything about you other than to destroy you. That's his goal. He doesn't care about your kids. His concern is to destroy them. He doesn't care about your brothers and sisters in Christ. His goal is to destroy them. 
You see, we first have to understand our enemy. And we hear these things as the church, right? We've all heard that verse before. If you've been around the church for any period of time, you have heard that that's who Satan is. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. problem is we have to take that serious. When we are called to uh, take on the character of Christ, when we are called to be built up as God's spiritual people, all of these things, God is building us up then to influence for him, but also knowing that there is an enemy who desires to destroy us, and we are prepared as we are walking with God. We are prepared to resist. We are prepared to stand against those things. But we have to understand that our enemy's desire is to destroy us. And he says in 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, he says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So uh, one of Satan's most effective tactics, though, is to destroy from within. You understand that so many times we think about Satan being, uh, you know, coming to steal, kill, and destroy, and we think of all these ways that he might do that. And too many times we get fixed on these big, blatantly obvious ways that, that Satan attacks us. You know, maybe the big kind of cultural things that we see around us in society, the kind of, break, whether it's breaking down family or, or whatever you can imagine, we have these big things where we think, you know, what's Satan trying to do? How is he trying to destroy, um, you know, families or whatever it is? You point to these big things immediately. But we miss the subtle areas where we allow Satan a foothold to get in our lives and he starts destroying us from within. Now one of those simple areas is in the church. If we can look at, at the church and see that sometimes uh, it's as simple as Satan just providing those little things where we become irritated with, with each other over and over. And rather than accomplishing the work of God, we're just bickering back and forth, Right? He begins to destroy us or suffocate us from within because we allow him in. Rather than resisting the temptation to just argue back and forth about things, rather than resisting that, we begin to play into it. And that suffocates and sucks the life out of God's people. Now that doesn't have to be just in the church. That could be in your family. Right? If you are, I won't say married, but if you're married, there are times where you disagree, right? You can choose how to respond to situations. You can choose to respond with a loving conversation, which I always do, right? <laughs> uh, you can choose to respond out of love. Or you can choose to say, you know, you have the attitude where, well, I'm right, so I'm going to make sure you know it. And even after you know it, I'm going to remind you some other time that I'm right and I was right. You see, we have those ways of allowing Satan in and he suffocates the church or our marriages or relationships with kids, whatever it is. He sucks the life out of our influence with people because we choose to respond out of our own sinful, selfish desires. That is a tactic of Satan that will destroy relationships whether it's in the church or family, whatever it is. The point is we have influence and we have to choose, number one, to recognize that we have an enemy who seeks to destroy that. And we're going to go on to talk about then, not just in the family and all of that, but even how it influences our interactions with society, meaning the government. 
but we have to understand that uh, Satan desires to destroy us. The Bible says that we should always be watchful. First uh, Peter 5, 8 again says, Be sober-minded and watchful because of the adversary. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Keep your heart with vigilance. First uh, Corinthians sixteen thirteen. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Mark fourteen thirty eight. Watch and pray. Jesus said this to his disciples in the garden. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ephesians five fifteen and sixteen says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So you understand that is what we are thrust into. We have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. We're the chosen people of God. The days are evil, is what he's saying in Ephesians. The days are evil, so be careful then how you walk. Now that means we can't be passive. right? If you are careful how you walk, that care involves intentionality. To, be, to have care or concern for something or be alert. All of these things. He says be vigilant. All these verses we just read, be vigilant. Be careful, watch. It requires our intention to think through the things that we face on a daily basis. That means when I get up in the morning, I recognize the days are evil. I'm the chosen people of God. Satan seeks to destroy that. So number one, I'm going to spend time to be prepared through the Spirit of God through, to face whatever it is through the day, that, that I can face that and resist the temptations of the enemy who seeks to destroy me. But, who destroys me, but also then that I would be able to use my influence well for God. Satan wouldn't destroy me, and I would use my influence well for God. Uh, so we are urged to be careful and watchful uh, because the sinful desires wage war against our souls. And uh, one commentary I read <clears throat> put it this way. He says, this means not merely a general antagonism between soul and body, but the, that the lusts of the flesh are on active service, engaged in a definite campaign against the immortal part of the man. So what we're talking about is that the sinful desires wage war against your soul. Again, he's saying it's, it's not just something where they kind of fight back and forth as maybe a brother and sister fight back and forth, but he's talking about a, a, an army who, t- who takes on a campaign against uh, your soul, something that is setting up and thinking through the way they're going about it. Now, I think uh, I've watched uh, you know, some documentaries, documentaries on uh, like World War II and the invasion of uh, Normandy and all those things, and they didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to invade... You know, we're going we're gonna to invade this beach. We're going to set up all this stuff and let's do it tomorrow. It's not how they did that. I've heard some conflicting stories, but the least amount of time that I've heard they started working through that process was a year. I've heard up to even three years. Now, the point is that there was thought that went into waging war against the enemy. They were careful how they went about it. They thought they had people in a room sitting through and thinking through all of the different avenues of what could happen and how we're going to gain an advantage over our enemy. Now that's exactly what the enemy does to us. He's not just passive. He's not just walking around one day and says, hey, here's this person over here. I might as well attack them on my way. He knows you. He knows how to get to you. He knows how to set things up to destroy you. He knows that. 
And it may not always be this big blatant attack like we think it is. It might be something where he starts here and then two years down the road he he has that goal. I'm going to start it now. It's going to be years and years, but eventually he's going to get them. So my point is that our enemy has very sophisticated tactics because he thinks through how he's going to seek to destroy us. Sinful things wage war against your soul. That's not passive. That's not a simple thing. It is an actual campaign against your soul seeking to destroy you. So we have to understand that about, that about the enemy. Uh, but he goes on then and says, uh, in light of all of this, then, we should abstain from the sinful things which war against your soul. Understand that there's a spiritual battle going on. We have to understand that as a church and be watchful on that. But then he goes on and says, uh, in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So we have to understand then that the moment we have received salvation, the moment then that we have become a citizen of heaven, as we've received salvation, my citizenship, ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And as I dwell in this place then, God has called us to be his ambassadors. If we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we, re- we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ uh, According to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as if God was making his appeal through us. So we have to understand then that when we receive salvation, our citizenship became heaven. We became a citizen of God's kingdom under the rule of our king. Then as we walk in this world as strangers in this land, as as foreigners in this land, the Bible says that we're ambassadors. And you think of ambassadors in this world, that they are sent to a land, what? To represent the position of their kingdom. When America sends an ambassador to another country, that ambassador is there to represent the official position of America. They don't go there and just say what they think. They don't go there and just say how they feel about certain political issues. They are going there to represent the position, the official position of America. And in the same way, as we are citizens of heaven, as we are part of God's kingdom under his rule, then as we walk on this earth as ambassadors... I am here to represent the official position of my king on matters of life. In all situations that I encounter, however great or small I think it is, my, my responsibility in that is repre- to represent the official position of my king. Uh, in our mission then, as ambassadors, we are controlled by the love of Christ. 
uh, in verse 14 in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, For the love of Christ controls us. Some versions say we are compelled by the love of Christ. Uh, so we experience his love at work within us, and the natural result, result of that then is that I begin to reflect Christ, and his love begins to control my desires and intentions. As I have received the love of Christ, as I have experienced it, as I have walked in that, uh, understanding the love that was expressed to me in taking me out of the pit of sin and death and raising me up to be a chosen person of God, to be his spiritual dwelling place, I understand the love that it took to accomplish that task. Then that begins to flow out of me as I take on the character of Christ through the Spirit of God working and living in me. And as I take on, as I have that love overflowing out of me, then my desires and intentions begin to reflect the desires and intentions of God. I love Oswald Chambers said this, I think I've said it before, but he said, uh, to be a disciple means that we deliberately identify ourselves with God's interests in others. When I become a disciple, I deliberately put myself in a position to recognize and align myself with God's interests in other people. Now, there's not much room for selfish intention in that. That means when I look at somebody else, out of the overflow of Christ's love working in within me, my first thought is, then, what is God's intentions in Wayne? What is God's intentions for Becky? What is God's intentions for Dave? What is God's intentions for that person? And how do I align myself with that? so that I might be able to help that process along, to help build somebody up. That's what God calls us to as His ambassadors. You see, because He says from now on in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. When I look at somebody then, I don't make my... Uh, judgment. I don't make assumptions based on my worldly vision. I'm compelled by the love of Christ with the message of reconciliation. I identify myself with God's interests in that person because I view them through the lens that Christ viewed me. Every one of us should have... I I can't remember who said it, but uh, he said, every one of us deserved death. Anything less was mercy. Every one of us deserved death. Anything less was mercy. So understanding then, when I view somebody through the lens uh, that Christ has viewed me, I take on his spiritual vision. Seeing that, uh, I think to be able to do that, first we recognize how miserable we were. The Bible says uh, in Revelation, I think chapter 4, but it says that you thought you were rich, and in reality you were wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. That's exactly where each one of us was. So the first time that we start throwing accusations of other people of how terrible they are, we need to remember that I was wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And without the Spirit of God dwelling in me, that's exactly where I am again. And when I truly recognize that in my heart, I recognize the love of Christ, and I begin to view people that way, seeing that I was in the position where the God who the Bible says dwells in unapproachable light looked on me and all he saw was sin. He should have had nothing to do with me. But he provided a way for us to 
gain peace and fellowship again. So I regard people in that way. Now, that's not to say sometimes uh, the Bible says that we should not judge people. That's true to an extent. It's true in the statement, but sometimes it's taken out of context. There are times that we are able to make judgments based on the things that people do. I'm not telling you, there are times where we have to make judgments in the church whether somebody is spiritually in a position to be uh, in a certain leadership position. We have to make judgments like that. We have to. But we do that as we are compelled by the love of Christ. We do that looking through a spiritual lens, not my own selfish desires, not just, well, I, I just don't care for this person's personality. That's not how we judge it. We judge it based on the love of Christ and the principles that God has revealed. With, If, if somebody ever has to be... I've seen situations... Well, let me say it this way. How many times have you ever heard somebody... You know, somebody's done something and they think, you know, that person got what they deserved. You know, something bad happened to somebody as a result of what they did and that person got what they deserved. Thank God that Christ never had that attitude with us. You see, my desire, when somebody does something terrible, my desire ultimately should be to see a person restored in the love of Christ. I should still have some sort of part of me that looks on the soul of a man or woman who has done something terrible and though it may make you sick in yourself there's still part of you that thinks how has this soul gotten that far from God that they would be able to commit a sin like this and praying that God would somehow restore whatever is left in that human soul The point is that being compelled by the love of Christ leads us to a place, even though we can't condone something, we still have a desire to see somebody know Christ and walk in Him and experience the fullness of life that comes in Christ. Uh, So we are called then to influence others for Christ as ambassadors. Uh, And this is the point where it gets difficult, especially in the day we live in. I understand this. I don't think that we can cover all of this in this moment or that I have all the answers to this, but in 1 Peter 2, starting verse 12 then, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Uh, The first thing that we have to understand in all of this is that governing authorities were ordained by God. God has ordained that in the earth there would be governing authorities uh, that would overcome the potential of chaos of people just doing whatever whenever they feel like it. God has ordained that. Governments are ordained by God. There's the first thing that we have to understand about that. Uh, We are called in these scriptures then to be submissive to those institutions. Our motivation in the submission is verse 13. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake 
to every human authority. Uh, so whether it's an emperor or a governor or president, whatever you can think of, we are to submit to the position of authority for the Lord's sake. Romans 13 says, uh, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So again, governments have been ordained by God. And the second thing then is governments are accountable to God to do good. If you read these scriptures in First Peter, it talks about the governments being there to create order, to do good things. So governments are accountable to God. There's going to be a day, the Bible teaches even among the church, it says that not, let not many of you become teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. What that is saying, there's not a different, it's not like, well, here's a set of rules for people who aren't teachers, and then here's a different set of rules for people who are teachers. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about your influence. It's saying when you step into this position, then you are held accountable for your position of influence. That's the same way it is in the government. God has ordained governments uh, among men on the earth. God has ordained those things, but I believe that the people then that have stepped into the positions that God has ordained, they will be held accountable for what they have done in those positions. Now I heard somebody talk about it, because the, the immediate thing in all of this is... Uh, you start to think about all the good governments and the bad governments, right? There have been governments that have done good things. There have been governments that have facilitated the slaughter of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over the years. There have been good things in government. There have been absolutely horrendous things in government. Now, I heard somebody say it this way, that God hasn't... When God ordained the positions in government, that doesn't mean that He ordained what people have done with government. It's the same as marriage. God has ordained marriage. But some people have abused it and done pretty egregious things through the institution. Now that's not a reflection on God. God has created marriage to be a certain thing in a certain way. To fulfill certain things in society and to do good things. Some people have entered into marriage in selfish desires and they have destroyed not only themselves but their children. That's not a reflection on God. The abuse of God's institutions is not a reflection on Him. Uh, so we have to understand that about our influence in the world and our influence then, what we're talking about here is our influence being submissive to the authorities that are over us. Uh, so governments have been ordained by God. They are accountable to God. Uh, the grace of God the grace of the gospel teaches us in submission and quiet where pride and carnal mind only sees causes 
for murmuring and content, discontent. Uh, so the, the point is then that we are called to be a people who are submiss- submissive, to be a people that would live a quiet life, to live a life of humility. The Bible says that all the time, if you read the words of Christ and see the life of Christ, you will see that we are to walk in quietness and submission and humility, considering others better than ourselves. Uh, the point of this is what we're saying is here, is that, uh, especially the moment we live in, we're walking towards a new election, right? In America, it's going to be very, very easy over the next year to talk about all the things and complain about everything we can imagine. What I'm saying as an overall point to this is we got to be able to be careful how we talk. We are called to be submissive in humility. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever make any points about something that should be different in the government. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever even protest something. I'm not telling you that you should just go home and accept everything that's ever said in the government. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that compelled by the love of Christ, when we look on something, we still have control in how we respond to something, how we talk, how we interact about the subject. What I'm saying is we've got to be very, very careful because we are called to be submissive to the authorities over us, then we have to be careful in how we talk to those people. Making sure that we are expressing the love of God. Meaning also, are we praying for the people we disagree with in government? Because it's easy to sit and complain about things and never ever one time lift them up in prayer, or we do it once. I think the, the perfect example of this is... Uh, um, I think, you know, in 2016, the election, that was it, 2016, right? Uh, So all of, I I saw so many things, people talking about praying for uh, President Trump and all of these things before he was a president, you know, leading up to that. Everybody talking about that. And then when he was first elected, all these people holding, uh, at least where I was, there was people talking about holding prayer meetings and things for him. Over time, at least it seemed like that kind of fizzled out. Now, I'm not. I'm sure there were some individuals that continued to pray. Uh, but overall, it seemed like people kind of lost their interest in lifting him up and the government. In all of this, what I am saying to you is we are called to be submissive to the government, to the authorities over us. When we speak, when we speak up, our words should be seasoned with the love of Christ. You can still make a valid point out of the love of Christ. Let me say it this way. We're going to close here very soon. Uh, the Bible says that uh, blessed are the meek. Christ said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are meek. And a lot of times we think of meekness in terms of being weak or just passive and sitting back and allowing everything to happen to you in life. I heard one person talk about it this way. What we are talking about in that moment is not just relinquishing any power or uh, strength that is in you, but it's just like a wild horse. right? In the first moment where you see a wild horse, they have no way of interacting with the people around them because they're a danger. right? They just kind of do their own thing. In their strength, they can injure people around them. What we're talking about in being meek is that strength being brought under the control of Christ. 
that power being brought under the control of Christ. So all of the things that are in us, Christ doesn't want to get rid of our strength or just make you sit back and let everything happen to you in life. He's saying, bring your strength under my control, that I may use it for my purposes. If you have the ability to speak up, if you have the ability to think through the things that the government speak up about it, bring that under the control of Christ and allow Him to speak up through you, under His power. Because you can be sure then that He will accomplish way more than you ever could have through your own strength. Um... I just want to make two more points and I'll be done. We also, though, then see moments where, in the Bible, where uh, God's people did not submit to government. So we have to understand that there are moments where things have gone far enough that we have to choose Christ over human institution. So when the Bible says that we should submit to every authority, that is saying it's, it's, it's conditional. It's not saying in every single circumstance. Let me show you. Uh, Matthew 22 says uh, this, starting in verse uh, 17. Tell us then what is your opinion. Uh, priests and Sadducees were talking to, to Christ. He said, tell us then what is your opinion. It's... It is, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin. Uh, I'm sorry, that, that's not the right verse. I'm sorry, Acts 5. Uh, Acts 5, starting verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and, and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And the point in that moment is they were brought before uh, the, the uh, authorities in that moment and they're saying, we told you not to preach. Why are you doing this? And they said, am I, am I supposed to obey you over God? And in that moment, they're illustrating to us that we are submissive to our authorities to the point where they say, you can't do what God told you to do. You can't preach. You can't talk about Christ. And in that moment, then we have to make a decision. I have done everything I could to be submissive to the authorities over me, but in this moment, they are pushing it to the point where I have to be obedient to my ultimate master, the one who I represent as an ambassador on this earth. Now, in all of this, I understand... When we start talking about these things, everybody starts thinking of all these crazy cases where this might not apply. I understand that. There is no way we could cover every single situation that could possibly arise when we're talking about this subject. Uh, One of the things I've always thought, I've heard of churches where they've had trouble in the past and the first thing that they want to start do to do then is create a policy so it never happens again. There are churches that are governed by policy manuals that are two inches thick. That happens. A policy does not change someone's heart. 
You could write a policy about anything and everything you can imagine. And number one, somebody will figure out something you never thought of. And two, your policy is meaningless. Because it doesn't change somebody's heart. Nobody cares about a policy that we wrote. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some things written out. We absolutely should. But my point is we can't be governed by uh, a policy on everything. And, and in this, in relation to the government, we can't sit here as the church and say, well, when this happens, this is what you do. And when this happens, this is what you do. When this happens, this is what you do. We, we can't live life that way. What this illustrates is that it is vital for me to walk in step with the Spirit of God. It is vital that I'm walking in step with the Spirit of God as the worship team comes. It's vital that I'm walking in step with the Spirit of God so that I can discern God's voice, so that He can bring my powers under His control, and then I can discern His voice saying, here's where I want you to speak up. Here's where I want you to be quiet. Here is the point where the government or the authorities or whatever it is has gone far enough that you need to stand up and say you can't do it. It can't be out of ourself. It can't be when I think it has to happen. It has to be as we recognize the Spirit of God leading us uh, in step with His Spirit, giving us spiritual vision and understanding. So as we close today, I'm not sure that I brought a whole lot of clarity to your relationship with the government. What I'm saying is be careful how you talk over the next year. There are things I understand that are unbelievably frustrating. I understand that. But we have a choice in the words that we use to communicate when something is frustrating. And they need to be seasoned by the love of Christ. All that we are needs to be brought under His control, walking in step with the Spirit so that we can discern God's voice and understand how to function with the world around us. The Bible isn't a rule book to tell you every move to make in life. That's not what it is. The Bible is meant to point out to you the person of Christ and reveal the mind of God. And through the Spirit of God, He makes that living within us. And as we walk in step with the Spirit, the Spirit says, hey, here's the situation you're in. Remember when you studied this in the Word of God? This is how it applies here. That's what He does. He's not going to tell you every move to make. So when you get to a situation, you're walking with the Spirit of God, and He says, here it is. Here's what you've been studying. Here is what you do with it. So as we close today, uh, just spend these moments considering whether you are walking in step with the Spirit of God because it is vital to our influence as ambassadors of Christ and our walking in step with Christ and being submissive to authorities. All of those things come down to us walking in step with the Spirit of God. Uh, this morning as we close uh, if you want to come to use the altars, they are open. If you if you want to pray by yourself, come over here. Nobody's going to come pray with you. You can pray by yourself. If you want somebody to pray with you, come over here, and we will have somebody there to pray with you. Uh, God, we thank you again today for the opportunity to worship you and to be together and for what your word reveals to us about who you are and about who you desire for us to be. And, Father, we pray that in all things, in all conversation and in our our 
our jobs and our family and our interactions with the government, whatever it is, we pray that we would be first submissive to you. And then out of that, we would be humbly submissive to those who are over us in this world, that our speech directed toward them would be seasoned by your love. And Father, that you would just do uh, immeasurably, immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine as we walk with you. Father, we love you today. It's your name we pray. Amen.